Please remain standing and turn your Bibles, please, to 2 Kings chapter 12. 2 Kings chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. In the seventh year of Jehu, Hoash became king, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zibiah of Beersheba. Jehoash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days in which Jehoiada the priest instructed him. But the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Jehoash said to the priest, All the money, the dedicated gifts that are brought into the house of the Lord, each man's census money, each man's assessment money, and all the money that a man purposes in his heart to bring into the house of the Lord. Let the priests take it themselves, each from his constituency, and let them repair the damages of the temple wherever any dilapidation is found. Now it was so by the 23rd year of King Jehoash that the priests had not repaired the damages of the temple. So King Jehoash called Jehoiada the priest and other priests and said to them, Why have you not repaired the damages of the temple? Now therefore do not take more money from your constituency, but deliver it for repairing the damages of the temple. And the priests agreed that they would neither receive more money from the people nor repair the damages of the temple. Then Jehoiada the priest took a chest, bored a hole in his lid, and set it beside the altar on the right side as one comes into the house of the Lord. And the priests who kept the door put there all the money brought into the house of the Lord. So it was, whenever they saw that there was much money in the chest, that the king's scribe and the high priest came up and put it in bags and counted the money that was found in the house of the Lord. Then they gave the money, which had been apportioned, into the hands of those who did the work, who had to oversight the house of the Lord, and they paid it out to the carpenters and builders who worked on the house of the Lord. And the masons and stonecutters and for buying timber and hewn stone to repair the damage of the house of the Lord, and for all it was paid out to repair the temple. However, there were not made for the house of the Lord basins of silver, tremors, sprinkling bowls, trumpets, any articles of gold or articles of silver from the money brought into the house of the Lord. But they gave that to the workmen, and they repaired the house of the Lord with it. Moreover, they did not require an account from the men into whose hand they delivered the money to be paid to workmen, for they dealt faithfully. The money from the trespass offering and the money from the sin offering was not brought into the house of the Lord. It belonged to the priest. Haziel, king of Syria, went up and fought against Gath and took it. Then Haziel set his face to go up to Jerusalem. And Jehoash, king of Judah, took all the sacred things that his fathers, Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Ahaziah, kings of Judah, had dedicated and his own sacred things, and all the gold found in the treasures of the house of the Lord, and in the king's house, and sent them to Haziel, king of Syria. Then he went away from Jerusalem. Now the rest of the acts of Joash and all they did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the king of Judah? And his servants arose and formed a conspiracy and killed Joash in the house of the Milo, which goes down to Silla. For Josachar, the son of Shemeth, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Shomer, his servants struck him. So he died, and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David. And Amaziah, his son, reigned in his place. May God add his rich blessing to reading of this portion of his holy word. Will you pray with me, please? Again, our Father, we're thankful for your word, and we pray that by the power of your spirit that you would speak to us now, that we would hear the voice of our good shepherd, Jesus Christ, and hearing his voice, 
that his sheep would know him and follow him and offer our hearts to him properly and sincerely in spite of the inability and sin of the preacher. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated, please. A day or 40 years in life. In this passage, we come to an era in Judah when things get, quote, back to normal. You think of an era like the 1950s. 1930s were largely marked by the Great Depression. The first half of the 40s with the Second World War and the second half of the 40s with the pains of adjusting to the reality of the Cold War. You skip from the 40s to the 60s, and in the 60s came the cultural clashes and complete generational revolution in society. And in between, the 1950s, seemed like this calm, almost idyllic period where things got back to, quote, normal for a little while. But in reality, I I wasn't around then, but I think I can say with some degree of confidence that the 1950s weren't really that great. Everybody did go to church back then, but theologically, most of them were as liberal, if not even worse, than they are now. The music of the 1960s was sure better than the 50s. Wasn't nearly as boring. We were at war in the 50s as well, and and plenty of Americans who weren't upper crust white folk suffered plenty in the 1950s. But things were relatively calm and normal. The times described here in 2 Kings 12 were sort of like that. They were not really very good. Certainly nothing we would think of as a golden age, but considering the recent past, times were fairly normal. You remember that in the previous chapter, Athaliah, Ahab's wicked daughter, Wicked Ahab's wicked daughter had had taken total control in Judah and was killing off her own grandchildren to consolidate her own power. The house of David was in jeopardy and more importantly, the promise of the Lord to David was at stake. But you remember the noble lady Jehoshaphat. She saved the baby, Joash. And the Lord used this faithful woman to preserve the house of David and his promise to bring the Messiah, the son of David, into the world. But compared to the murderous In crazy world of 2 Kings 11, 2 Kings 12 represents what Warren Harding would have called a return to normalcy. These few verses cover the 40-year reign of Joash, the baby, the descendant of David that Jehoshaphat saved 
from the extermination carried out by Athaliah. And we can learn some real lessons from these these 40 years in the life of the kingdom of Judah. Let's get to it. First, in this passage, we see imperfect goodness. Imperfect goodness. Look at verse 2. Jehoash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days in which Jehoiada the priest instructed him. But the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on high places. Now, this is not the first time in Kings we have encountered words to this effect. We've seen it over and over again. So-and-so did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but, however, the problem with Joash here is was not so much what he did what he did as what he did not do, at least at this point in his life. He generally did right, but there is a sin of omission. The high places remained. See, Jehoash or Joash, he did all right. But he did not get rid of all the idolatry in the land. And this reminds us of a plain and obvious truth. There will be no perfection in this life, in this present world. Jehoash was the king of Judah. He was the head of the government. And Judah was what we would call a theocratic state. It was the only legitimate theocratic state in the history of the world because it was the only nation the Lord himself ever established and gave his own constitution and law. And their king, Joash, who was better than average among their kings, had a bad failure on his resume. The religion of the people in God's own holy chosen nation was corrupted. And there are three brief try to be brief, undeniable applications of this. First, there will be no perfect government in this world. Now, I'm pretty sure we would all agree to that statement. We know it's true that there will be no perfect government in this world, but but do we act like it? Do you realize that by the time the runoff in Georgia is over, nearly $2 billion will have been spent on advertising in Senate races alone 
this year. Now, that's just what's documented. Who knows how much was really spent? In a couple months, we'll we'll have a new Congress. And whatever your views may be about the slightly blue Senate or the slightly red house, I can tell you on the authority of the Word of God that they are going to be worse than you think they will. I don't care what your expectations are for the government, your expectations are too high. There will be no perfect government in this world. Second, there will be no perfect church, religion, or worship in this world. There will be no perfect church, religion, or worship in this world. A good king couldn't get it cleaned up or wouldn't get it cleaned up in Judah. Listen to these wise words from chapter 25 of the Westminster Confession. It says, this Catholic church, and that's referring to what we call the invisible church, all over the, 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 the true church all over the world. This church has been sometimes more, sometimes less visible. And particular churches, that's talking about a local church like this one, which are members thereof, because there's only one real true church throughout the world. Everybody belongs to Jesus. But particular churches, which are members thereof, are more or less pure, according as the doctrine of the gospel is taught and embraced, ordinances administered, and public worship performed more or less purely in them. The purest churches under heaven. Now, there's a pure church in heaven that's really pure. But the purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and error. And some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ but synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, there shall be always a church on earth to worship God according to His will. But it won't be perfect. Not under heaven it won't. Remember when I was in seminary, dear professor, Dr. Douglas Kelly used to tell us boys there's one There's one prayer you don't ever want to pray, Lord, put me in a perfect church, because there is one, but it has to kill you to get you in it. There'll be no perfect government. There'll be no perfect church or worship. And the third thing we can draw from this point is that there'll be no perfect people in this world. Again, we know this, but do we act like it? Psalm 131 is a short psalm. 
that deals with the subject of contentment. You don't need to turn to it, but it's about how to be content in this world. And the very last thing it says is, let Israel hope in the Lord from henceforth and forevermore. Do you know why we experience so much discontentment in this life? It's because we hope in the government, in the church, and sinful people instead of the Lord himself. And before we leave this point, we must also note that guaranteed imperfection, and our imperfection is guaranteed, Guaranteed imperfection in no way absolves us of our duty to do the very best we can. You can search the Bible from cover to cover and you will not find a verse that says you cannot be perfect, so don't bother. I have been searching and hoping to find that verse for over 40 years. But it is not in the Bible. Verse 3 does not say the high places were not destroyed, but the Lord let that slide because he knew Joash wasn't perfect. No. Jehoash is held responsible for his failure. He got a permanent asterisk on his record in the eternal Word of God for his failure to purge the nation of idolatry. We see imperfect goodness. Secondly, in this passage, we see faithfulness and sluggishness. Faithfulness and sluggishness. Look at verse 4. And Jehoash said to the priest, All the money of the dedicated gifts that are brought into the house of the Lord, each man's census money, each man's assessment money, and all the money that a man purposes in his heart to bring into the house of the Lord, let the priest take it themselves, each from his constituency, and let them repair the damages of the temple wherever any dilapidation is found. Now while Jehoash was not committed to tearing down the idolatrous shrines. He was committed to repairing the temple of the Lord. Now, the the king mentions three types of offerings in verse 4. One of them is the the universal temple tax, a half a shekel on any, any man of age. And then there's service given to the the temple, but in exchange for cash. You read about that in uh, Leviticus uh, 27. Uh, Don't need to get into all that, but if you promised, uh, you take, uh, for instance, Hannah had promised the Lord he could have Samuel. Um, In other circumstances, you could give the, the value the cash value of human labor or, or of an animal from your flock. 
And then also he mentions free will offerings. And, and he tells the priest to use these offerings to repair the temple. Now, of course, some of it they were to use for their living expenses according to the law. But above and beyond that, King said the offerings to be used for the upkeep and repairing the temple. <coughs> and the people gave faithfully. But look at what happened. Verse 6. Now it was so by the 23rd year of King Jehoash that the priests had not repaired the damages of the temple. So King Jehoash called Jehoiada the priest and the other priests and said to them, Why have you not repaired the damages of the temple? Now therefore do not take more money from your constituency, but deliver it for repairing the damages of the temple. And the priests agreed that they would neither receive more money from the people nor repair the damages of the temple. And now the problem here was not that the priests were embezzling the offering. They weren't, they weren't stealing the money for themselves. The problem was sluggishness. They just never got around to it. And verses 7 and 8 report the general facts that the king confronted them about it, and they agreed. We haven't gotten this job done. But I expect Jehoash read them the riot act in that meeting. But, but like we said, this... This period of Judah's history represents a return to normal. Isn't this pretty much normal life? A day in the life, 40 years, a generation in the life of Judah. This is normal. The king is, is pretty good, but not great. There's idolatry mixed in with the worship of the Lord. And the people are giving faithfully to the building project, but it stays bogged down in a committee for years and nothing ever gets done. Can things possibly get any more normal than that? This is as normal as normal can be for God's people. But Jehoiada the priest has some common sense. He knows there's one way to get this project moving forward. Public accountability. So he, he takes a chest. Like my great-grandmother had a chest at the foot of every bed in her house it was full of blankets and atkins. He takes a chest, padlocks it, and drills a hole in the top of it puts the chest by the altar at the entrance of the temple, and the priest who kept the doors would put the money directly, drop it directly into the chest. By the way, it would strongly indicate that the priests were not given the key or combination to the padlock on that chest. When the chest got full, couldn't shove any more money down the hole, because it was packed, the king's scribe and the high priest would open the chest. You had the king's scribe and the high priest, two sets of eyes, two different groups of people, accountability. 
Well, open the money, open the chest, and give the money to the contractors repairing the temple. Now look at verse 11. Then they gave the money which had been apportioned into the hands of those who did the work, who had to oversight the house of the Lord, and they paid it out to the carpenters and builders who worked on the house of the Lord, and the masons and stonecutters, and for buying timber and hewn stone to repair the damage of the house of the Lord, and for all it was paid out to repair the temple. Now skip to verse 14. But they gave that to the workmen, and they repaired the house of the Lord with it. Moreover, they did not require an account from the men into whose hand they delivered the money to be paid to workmen, for they dealt faithfully. So once they collected the money, they hired contractors, and carpenters, and masons to, to repair the temple. And, and they didn't even have to keep an account because... They were honest men and good workers. And I'm sure it will make multiple members of this church happy to see that the contractors and carpenters were more faithful to the Lord, more faithful with His money than the religious professionals had been. Now verses 13 and 16 explains some logistics. Verse 13 says they didn't make any instruments or utensils would be stored in the back with this money. All of it went to repairing the temple, which was easy to quantify and see that the money was being used properly. Everybody could see the improvements to the building. Then verse 16 assures us that the priest still got theirs too. We see this mixture of faithfulness and sluggishness. The people give. The contractors are honest. The priests are not stealing the money, but they're slow to get the job done. Yet once they get fussed at and have their feet held to the fire with some public accountability, they get it done. In other words, they were just like us. We have some level of faithfulness, but most of us need to face some public scrutiny and have the occasional riot act read to us before we get our work done. It has well been said, for many of us, if it weren't for the last minute, nothing would get done. But thank the Lord, He's not too nice to read us the right act or send one of his servants to do it from time to time. This is real life. A day in the life, 40 years in the life of God's people. So we see imperfect goodness. We see faithfulness and sluggishness. And thirdly and finally in this passage, we see a weak finish a weak finish. Look at verse 17. Haziel, king of Syria, went up and fought against Gath and took it. And then Haziel set his face to go up to Jerusalem. And Jehoash, king of Judah, 
took all the sacred things that his fathers, Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Azariah, kings of Judah, had dedicated and his own sacred things and all the gold found in the treasure of the house of the Lord and the king's house, and he sent them to Haziel, king of Syria. Then he went away from Jerusalem. This was a terrible, cowardly move on Jehoash's part. You do not take the Lord's property, holy things dedicated to the Lord in his house, and use them to grovel at the feet of a pagan king. And then get scared and run away from him after you pay him. Now, there's more to Jehoash than is recorded here in 2 Kings 12. In 2 Chronicles 24, you, you don't need to turn because I'm going to focus on kings. One day we'll go through Chronicles and we'll deal with it then. But 2 Chronicles 24 tells us that in the end, Jehoash turned bad. He rotted out in the end. You remember Jehoiada the priest. It was his wife who, who saved Jehoash when he was a baby. And, and she took him to Jehoiada the priest, and he raised him and protected him in the temple. Second Chronicles 24 tells us that Jehoiada the priest died. Jehoash, he went to pot. He abandoned the temple that he had restored and turned to idolatry. Then Jehoiada's son, Zechariah, had the courage to confront the king and tell him what he was doing wrong, and the king had him stoned to death. He ordered the murder of the son of the very people who had saved his life years before. 2 Chronicles 24, 22 says, Thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness which Jehoiada his father had done to him, but killed his son. And as he died, he said to the Lord, Look on it and repay. And that's why the Syrians attack that we read here in 2 Kings 12. 18. When the king murdered the son of the prophet or the priest, he said as he was dying, Lord, pay him back for what he's done. He did. The Syrian attack is the Lord's judgment against Jehoash. Now, all these details are not in this passage, but the general substance is there. Look at verse 2 again. Go back to verse 2. Jehoash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days in which Jehoiada the priest instructed him. And that implies that when Jehoiada the priest dies, Jehoash will stop doing what's right. And that's exactly what happened. Look at how Jehoash ends. Look at verse 20. 
Go straight in verse 2, verse 20. And I'll turn. And his servants arose and formed a conspiracy and killed Joash in the house of Milo, which goes down to Silla. For Josachar, the son of Shimeath, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Shomer, whose servants struck him. So he died, and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David. Then Amaziah's son reigned his place. It's so sad. The precious baby that was saved from destruction and made such a promising start as king in his old age, he forgot the kindness that Jehoshaphat and Jehoiada had shown him. And worst of all, he forgot the kindness the Lord had shown him. And he turned away from the Lord, was under attack, and was murdered by his own servants. You know, it's normal, it's human to read this, the, the end of this chapter, and, and wonder. What happened after Jehoash's servants murdered him? Did the holy angels carry his spirit to Abraham's bosom? Or did he open his eyes in hell? I catch myself having thoughts like that when I, when I read this passage. What happened to him? Where did he go when he died? And the Lord says to me, that's none of your business, son. Now the point of this this text, this tragic ending of Jehoash is to make me ask myself, how am I going to finish? There was another man in the Bible who knew his time had come and said, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. You know why I was able to say that? Because the same apostle said he was confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. There is someone who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. He has promised, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them. Out of my Father's hand. He is the King. The only perfect King. He's the true temple. He didn't drag on the temple repair for over 27 years. He said, destroy this temple and I will raise it back up in three days. And He did. When a true glorified temple of God walked out of a tomb on a Sunday morning 
the third day, 2,000 years ago. And he's promised, all who come to him, he will in no wise cast out. He won't lose you. He won't let you go. This is the will of the Father who sent me that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing. But should raise it up at the last day. We look at the sad and tragic ending of Joash. It serves as a warning to us all. It makes me think of that famous quote of John Wesley. Our people die well. You're going to die. Don't you want to die well? There's a way to finish strong. There's only one way to finish strong. Now to him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and ever. Amen.